This time on CQ Speaks, we discuss the coterie of poets in our heads, the serendipity of literary threads in the fall issue of the Carolina Quarterly, and the community built between writer and reader. All that and more now on CQ Speaks. Welcome to CQ Speaks, a podcast from the Carolina Quarterly. I'm your host, Colin DeKescheter, and joining me on today's program to discuss the recently released Volume 60, Issue 1 of the Carolina Quarterly is Editor-in-Chief Kylan Rice. Kylan, welcome. How are you doing, Colin? Doing well. How are you? Good, good. I, um, uh, we're enjoying a cloudy day <laughs> here in North Carolina. It's about to get rainy for the rest of the week, and I'm not looking forward to that. Oh, really? I, I could use some time to hole up and read. Yeah, well, um... <laughs> I, I actually could take some time to reread the new issue. Um, it's something that definitely bears rereading. Uh, yeah, and um, I would say rereading with a sense of cohesion in mind could be beneficial to listeners, even though it's not a, a themed issue. But um, can you speak at all to that sense of cohesion? Yeah, well, so th- there are a couple of things there. So, uh, you know, I, I just came on as editor-in-chief uh, in the summer, taking over from Sarah George Waterfield, who... You know, those of you who, who were listening to the podcast, she she um, was, in addition to being editor-in-chief, filling Colin's role here as podcast guru. So you may be familiar with her voice. Uh, I came on board and saw that we were publishing two double issues of the Carolina Quarterly. And I decided that, um, just based on my own predilections and tastes, uh, that the long, kind of baggy format of a 200-plus page biannual was ungainly for me. You know, I, I just got something similar to that, a 200-page issue of a journal that I really love and admire. But, you know, I, I don't know when I'm going to be able to tackle that mountain mm-hmm. but with all the other reading that I do. And I, I imagine if you're listening to this podcast and you're subscribing to journals, you know, that you probably are doing a lot of reading outside of Carolina Quarterly. So I think our job as curators of literature is to is to do so in a, in a targeted relatively brief way so that you can digest in new literature in a highly curated sort of fashion. And so that's the idea behind splitting the journal back into a quarterly where we publish two quarterly print issues of about, you know, 100 and 120 pages and then ditto for our for two digital issues um, for subscribers. And ideally we'll work up with the, you know, the right funding to print issues all across the board. So mm-hmm. four print issues a year. But yeah, you're right. I think by virtue of a shorter format, it becomes easier to sort of be sensitive to consistencies across the poetry and prose that we've Mm -hmm. got going in this issue. Which is hugely important for readers, I think, especially today where they're just inundated with so much work Mm -hmm. um, via the Internet or the many journals that they hopefully subscribe to. So speaking of a sense of curation, you're responsible for the addition of a new feature called Friend. Would you like to tell listeners a little about the idea behind it? What your thinking was behind the friend? Right, right. So we've got a, an exciting new feature in this issue and, and our forthcoming issues. Uh, as long as I'm I'm in the position here of editor in chief, and that is what I'm calling the friend. It happens at the back of the book. It uh, is a rotating feature in terms of genre. So it's not always going to be poetry. Although this issue it was, we, we feature in it an excellent poet who's been around for a while, but maybe some would describe him as up and coming or, or, um, or a younger poet. His name is Oliver Baez Bendorf. And 
the thing of it is, though, I, I had nothing to do with his selection in the journal. In fact, I asked Gabriel Calvacaresi, who is a professor here at UNC and a very established poet, very well-respected, excellent, excellent poet, to select somebody whose work she believes just deserves to be read more. And the idea behind this asking somebody to curate, you know, somebody else's work who, who, who they believe deserves more attention, the, the idea here is to create a small kind of community in the back of, of Carolina Quarterly of mutual admiration, uh, of patronage, right? We can't get around it in, in today's literary world that no one would survive as a writer without, first of all, without friends, and, and second of all, without a degree of patronage, right? That old sort of form of doing the arts, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's an amazing thing to be doing. I don't know how often uh, established poets are shining a light on um, up-and-comers or lesser-known people, but I think it needs to happen much more often. Yeah. Um, so that's a wonderful feature to include in the magazine. Is there anything else you'd like to say about it? Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of a philosophy behind it, too, which... You know, maybe I could talk a little bit Please, about Please, go ahead. Um, and, and that is, you know, my, my my engagement with poetry, first of all, has, has always been about intimate others, right? P- people, people who I am working with, either peers, uh, other poets who I'm writing for or with, um, or uh, specific mentors, right, who, who I'm writing for or with, again, or maybe even specific uh, poets who I'm writing with in mind, right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, and they might be dead, they might be living, they, I, they might be people I don't know. In any event, and across the board, my engagement with poetry, and you know, I come from a, a poetry writing background, is um, uh, personal. And I, and I don't mean that I seek to write personally or subjectively or whatever. I'm actually trying to get away from that. Mm-hmm. But, but the reasons why I write are always about individual others, right? And so I wanted to kind of have that manifest here in the back of Carolina Quarterly, which is this vision of poetry as being something that's intimate, mm-hmm. something that's shared between two people, right? Uh, you know, I had a mentor whose own mentor once told him, you know, as a poet, you write with five other people in mind. You write for an audience of five, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're people you can think of, hold in your mind, and speak to, you know, across the page. Mm-hmm. Again, those people might be living or dead, famous or not. And I feel like that's somehow deeply at the core, not only of poetry, but all literary writing, at least in today's world, where literature has to compete in a media kind of ecology Mm -hmm. for people's time and attention, that it oftentimes oftentimes is about a a kind of a small coterie or community or circle or Mm -hmm. intimate encounter, right? And that's kind of what I wanted to see happen. The sparks kind of fly there in the friend, right? Mm -hmm. This little little feature at the back of, of every issue. So it's a wonderful philosophy. I also had a mentor who who said that at any given moment he has um, five or six, uh, he called them esthete poets mm-hmm. uh, in his head that he was in conversation with. And, I, and I've tried to adopt that as well, but it can sometimes be uh, detrimental, especially if that coterie isn't shifting or rotating or allowing for new uh, influences to rear their heads. So I think this curatorial style, uh, which essentially hands the reins over to another, is interesting thinking about how we, um, full disclosure, I, I also write poetry, but 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 how poets can sometimes uh, close themselves off within a within a single aesthetic. Well, that I mean, that's kind of the beauty of you know farming the task of curation out to to somebody else, mm-hmm. right? I get to get outside of 
my own aesthetic head and ask somebody else whose interests, even if I like their poetry, right? Say Gabby Calcaresi or any number of the other people who I hope to kind of contact or people who I know probably established writers working now whose work I admire. Mm-hmm. But inevitably, their, their tastes are going to be different than mine. And that's just going to ramify with uh, who they choose, mm-hmm. right? And um, ideally, that will automatically kind of build in a kind of diversity um, at an aesthetic level. And so that that's kind of the dream, uh, is that it's out of my hands. It's kind of out of my control. Mm-hmm. A- and I feel like that takes a kind of... I mean, I think some editors... Sometimes the editorial position is one of like petty power, right? Mm-hmm. But but I guess what I'm interested in is kind of using Caroline Quarterly as a space for sharing mm-hmm. of curatorial power, and and you know that's built into the very way in which we structure our genre editorial positions, right? I have almost no say as editor in chief about what gets in the journal, but you know, but the poetry editor Calvin Olson has entire control over his domain and his tastes are different. His aesthetic visions are different than say, for instance, our, our new nonfiction editor, Joe Clevdahl, right? Her aesthetics are going to be different. So what you get, I mean, it, it's, it's wonderful that you're picking up kind of consistencies and coherence across the journal because ideally what you've got is, is a smorgasbord, right? And I think it's a kind of a miracle that there are threads throughout the issue. I mean, maybe you could speak to a couple of them. I feel like you've read it more recently than I have. I think the themes that I saw in the poetry and the fiction um, are two sides of the same coin or um, at the opposite ends of the spectrum of history. The poetry, perhaps with the exception of Oliver Baez Bendorf's work, which we'll get to, seem to deal with the past, either personal or otherwise, through a backward glance or gazing at monuments. We see this in the opening pages with titles like at Keats's grave, against the wall of the old city, uh, covered bridge, the bones of the monks, which I believe is referencing the Capuchin crypt in Rome. And so there was in the opening pages a sense that the poets were looking backwards to sort of suss out exactly where they stand today. Interesting. And then with the fiction, it sort of looked in the opposite direction. Mm. I wasn't put in the mind of Delillo's white noise. Mm. There's sort of this quiet dancing around a domestic apocalypse. Mm. Nothing so uh, sinister as what we see in, in white noise, but a deep awareness of being saturated and maybe doomsday thinking, yeah. both on a uh, very real lived level through relationships and things like that, and then also a larger political level where people are confused about the climate and where, and where we're headed. Again, just looking at the titles, we get World's End, Cadaverland, The Chosen Ones, uh, with his apocalyptic overtones. All this to say that there seems to be in the fiction not always a pessimistic looking forward, but a looking forward that begins from a place of, of impending doom or an end of some kind, be it large or personal. So it's interesting to see sort of those two ways of looking at the world and being in the world. Um, and then I saw The Friend as a kind of a perfect culmination of these two uh, uh, ways of thinking or directionalities, especially with regard to Gabriel Cavalcaresi's uh, introduction to the poems. Yeah, and I'll just throw in, um, <laughs> you know, don't judge a book by its cover or anything, but the cover art, I feel like, has an interesting way of, of tying into your reading of the issue, which is 
uh, we have this wonderful image by uh, a photographer named Tracy Pitts, and uh, Pitts um, in the you know the cover image, a a woman's an older woman's face is looking off into the shadow. Kind of her whole face is sort of shrouded in shadow, looking off to the right of the image. Mm-hmm. And behind her, you can tell that she's sitting in a in a chair, and in the back, uh, like sort of a rocking chair. And in the background, outdoors, you can kind of see a group of people kind of gathered in the back. And and so there's this sense of like both nostalgia. It's a very nostalgic image. It's kind of shrouded in a kind of like evening shadow. You can tell it's maybe a family gathering. This is some sort of matriarch, right, being being pictured. And so the nostalgia is present, but the face of the of the primary subject is sort of looking off either into the future or to the past and and you have this real sense of tension between nostalgia which maybe we're seeing that at work in the poems and the issue mm-hmm. and, and then a kind of a sense of perhaps a little bit of, of a sense of unease or dread or or something off-putting in 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 the knowledge that nostalgia has consequences mm-hmm. right um for say politics or, yeah. or something which i feel like ben dorf does a really good job of, of addressing sort of the the um that that frontier that you're sensing at play it's also interesting i haven't taken the cover in that much but looking at it right now and the face which is in the foreground is also cut in half we only have an an ear and some hair and a shoulder and so the subject immediately becomes sort of obfuscated Mm -hmm. and we want to draw the eye towards something else but the something else is totally out of focus Mm -hmm. but yet it draws our focus because the foreground is so untenable Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of exactly what we're seeing in the I'm drawing all these connections, sure. but we're exactly what we're seeing in, the, uh, in at least the poems that are looking back. But let's look at the poem a little bit more deeply and see if we can't draw some of these thoughts out. Um, Kylan, would you be willing to read Maya Elsner's Against the Wall of the Old City? Sure. Uh, just uh, by preface, you've asked me to read a very challenging poem uh, in the sense that readers or rather listeners won't be able to see that it's laid out in two columns. Mm-hmm. Each each column uh, justified against the other, which I, mean, I won't just explain it any further because it will get us into the weeds. But um, <laughs> I feel like, and again, I I didn't pick this poem. Our 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 poetry editor Calvin Olson did, but in the conversations that Olson was having with Elsner, they were very careful about designing the poem such that it could be read both vertically and horizontally. Uh-huh. So it's it's a poem in some way that defies reading out loud but I'll give my best shot. Reading it, in this case, horizontally. Oh, thank you, because I did not read okay. it together. <laughs> so in other words, what I'm saying is there are, that there are possibly three ways of reading mm-hmm. this poem. Well, yeah. two to three. All right. Against the wall of the old city. Against the old wall, your hands yellowing. Notches deep, the chirologists deliberate. There's so much erased. The prophets have become historians. The cathedral is not where we left it. We walk past the beautiful stained glass of what is now the gymnasium. The Roman sarcophagus is become an altarpiece. Dionysius on the cross. St. Wilgerfortis, just a Christ in Persian dress. Old pilgrims' roads now privatized who owns the rainfall gathered on cobbled streets, refracted street lights tear, a broken city. Tyro again violated. The Chimeri lost between transliteration and an ocean edge. There was once another version. 
Antigone got a happy ever after after all in Euripides, or so the story goes. To end each tragedy, there was once a satyr play, each now lost except Euripides, Cyclops, hardly room in this for generalization, lacking its own tragic trilogy. Funny how history has rewritten it in blank space. In the evening, rubble is made relic. For instance, Mahayana remains only in Tibetan or Nepalese translation, scratched up transcription of the Pali, in other words, of the other scribe. How much of Theravada practice survived? Colonization and another poet fractured another portrait of a lady, the same drunk singer with his bashed up guitar still wandering the streets. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> First thing I noticed just from jumping from the cover to here, which I haven't thought about, is against the old wall, your hands yellowing. Mm. And what's interesting is that the you of the poem disappears almost immediately, mm. uh, and our eyes are drawn, as it mm. were, um, to the relatively out of focus history or that which is in the background of the moment. Right. That's great. Right. I mean, the you is juxtaposed against the old wall here. Mm -hmm. um, we do get a, a we, a plural couple, walking through history here, literary, antique, etc. And I think you're absolutely right. What you have a real sense of here is profound scope. Mm -hmm. right? I'm envisioning certain 17th and 18th century paintings, especially those that um, prescribe to the picturesque aesthetic, right? And oftentimes what you'll see is this sort of vast landscape, very shadowy, sort of full of chiaroscuro and ruins, right? Mm -hmm. With oftentimes one or two small figures in either the background or the foreground. And there's that sense here, there's, there's a very sort of picturesque kind of quality in the sense of uh, inhabiting a ruined landscape that is ultimately not, not also dead, right? There's a real lived dimension to this speaker's, if we can call it that, this speaker's relationship with culture and history. Absolutely. Not dead at all. I mean, a line that struck out to me initially was the prophets have become historians. Mm -hmm. And if we can sort of mm -hmm. extrapolate the prophets into the poets, it's really interesting thinking about the poetry and the issue where the poets have quite literally become historians, mm -hmm. whether they're standing against the wall of the old city or if they're at Keats's grave, but the history immediately bounces back in and develops the uh, inner life of the speaker in a lot of cases, specifically in the case of uh, James Chiano's at Keats's grave. So these kind of themes continue throughout the journal, and um, at some points it's almost like the poems are making direct reference to one another. Uh, one moment that I'll cue readers in on was, um, the Roman sarcophagus has become an altarpiece, is in direct conversation with Ken Holland's poem, The Bones of the Monks, which begins, The bones of the monks are legoed in their chapels, skulls stacked into the shape of altars. And that takes place in Rome, right. which is quite interesting. There's some strange sort of uh, synchronous well, phenomena happening Kings there. Keats' grave is in Rome, too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, like you mentioned, um, James Chiana's poem features that as well. So mm -hmm. there's a sense of uh, Roman antiquity at play here. Yeah. So, unfortunately, we won't have much time to draw on the fiction today, which I felt to be at the other end of the spectrum of history, um, that is the future, but perhaps we'll save that for another episode. So, let's stick with the poetry for now, and I'd like to ask uh, what sense of futurity or contemporaneity you see in a poem like Against the Wall of the Old City. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, well, first of all, 
you, you have to grapple with with the poem's explicit postmodernity, or perhaps it's just straight up modernity. Who knows? But what we have here is this amalgam, sort of basket full of of shards of history and culture. Right. So we've got Henry James thrown up beside. Tibet and Nepal mm-hmm. run up beside uh, ancient Greek literature, right? Uh, ancient Greek drama, right? You've you've got you know ancient Christianity again thrown up beside sort of ancient Eastern religions, right? So so while there is a sense of antiquity, there's also something that reminds me of maybe an Eliot poem, right? So so I would take back the postmodernity bit, right? <laughs> right here we have the you know the fragment short against my ruin. Absolutely. I mean, I I guess it wouldn't be fair to ever call this. Uh, a modernist poem, precisely because it's being published in 2019, and, and for that reason, there's, there must be markers of of the contemporary moment that Eliot couldn't have maybe grappled with. But I'd say that first. So, in terms of futurity, I think that that one has to reckon with the split, the cut from coherent shared culture to this kind of scrabbling after remnants, fragments, and kind of mashing them all together here. I mean, I, I'm so struck by by the Henry James portrait of the lady mm-hmm. reference there at the end. That just is so. And then maybe something with the bashed up guitar, something about like Stevens or or Picasso in there too at the end. Yeah, right. The man um, with the blue guitar. Well, I will say this one other thing in terms of futurity, because the line that in fact gets me along those lines, perhaps will be surprising. And it's old Pilgrim's Roads now privatized. Who owns the rainfall gathered on cobbled streets, refracted streetlights, tear a broken city, right? So uh, we have the now mm-hmm. invoked here. Um, and it's a now that is privatized. Uh, and we can think of a neoliberal contemporary moment as, you know, the privatization of just about everything. Mm-hmm. And the speaker is coming to grips with perhaps uh, temporal dissonance, right, where they are surrounded by antiquity and culture and remnants of it, but and, and it's somehow also inaccessible, or rather that space is inaccessible by anything other than fragments of culture and history, mm-hmm. right? So somehow you can't actually engage with the now because it's privatized, right? And so in some ways, the strategy by which the speaker attempts to engage with the present is actually to, to look back, right? And to, and to find the footholds in the past by which to engage with a privatized now. And what we see in Bendorf's poems at the end of the book is a real grappling with the theme of privacy in a kind of an astounding way for me, given that that's something I think about a lot with respect to poetry as this kind of esoteric holdup kind of genre. Um, that's an incredible reading. And I saw the Bendorf poems as a not a way forward or a way out of the poems that preceded it and the fiction that preceded it. But as the development of what Cavalcaresi calls a new world mm. in, in her introduction to his work. And I thought that that was quite interesting because she's not talking about a utopia, per se, mm. because she wants all the dangers and the pain and the, she calls it the... Beautiful, terrible, all of it. <laughs> well, through all of that, there is a sense of desiring to be safe. Right. Which is the theme she's working around. But before we run out of time, I think we should give a little bit more attention to one of the Bendorf poems. Is there uh, anything you had in mind or wanted to look at? Uh, yeah, so Colony Collapse. It's the last poem in Bendorf's suite of eight. It's it's kind of wonderful. Do you mind if I actually read it in, in its entirety? I would love that. Okay. Colony Collapse begins without shelter in a storm. What I have to do next. I sleep best at anyone else's house. I like the ones that bees like 
I think madness is colonization. I know grace is how I'm still alive. Shock of blue jay on an oxidized fence. I try to make a religious exception. Don't die of perfection. Heave along the golden rod. Begin to live more together. I try to unravel Spanish ways of knowing. For example, crown on my head in an empty field. We plant lavender and let it grow, bushy for the bees, sexy how they feed on blooms. Pleasure, time, money, faith, yucca, evil, each one multiplies. We never eat alone. Come over, I will be a confidential lover to each one of you. Private things, private thoughts. We bake breadcrumbs into royal jelly. I love with every hand, horse, water, wind. If you wonder where to rear the young, if you too fall feverish after that communal feeling, swear to God, when I'm dead, I'll spend years waiting for the living to call, offer wine and dance. I need everyone I love. I'm too tired. Time to feed are missing before they come gone. Third eye's a glory hole. Doors open. Soup's on. That was a wonderful reading, and, and hearing you read, hearing it out loud, it makes me think differently about it, um, about its stakes. I mean, that hard jump from the ecological calamity of the poem's title, Colony Collapse, into a space of relationality and the sentiment, uh, I sleep best at anyone else's house, a relationality that has behind it a kind of desperation or sense of being or, or, or needing to be exiled from one's home, gives us uh, once again that sense of danger, but also safety and in some sense privacy. But how do you think about the, uh, the stakes of this poem? I mean, so I guess what's, what I see at stake in, in this poem is um, some way it harks back to the way I was kind of talking about this, this section, the friend, mm-hmm. earlier, when I was kind of talking of it as a space of intimate communion, right? And I think that, that, that this poem knows itself as a space of intimate communion. And I think in lines like, come over, I will be a confidential lover to each one of you, private things, private thoughts. I can't help but read a little bit of Walt Whitman there. Surprisingly, for people who maybe aren't familiar, for people who are familiar with, you know, Song of Myself, what we get is a cosmic kind of all-encompassing, all-loving Whitman. Mm-hmm. But what we get in the Calamus sequence, published right after the first printing of Leaves of Grass, we get the first printing in 1855. In 1860, we have the Calamus sequence added on. That's a sequence of poems in which Whitman is explicit about how private his interactions with you, the reader, are. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of confidentiality, true confidentiality there in the midst of a poet's work, which can be defined by its publicity, right, by its scope, by its participation in the wider world. And I think what we have here is a similar kind of tension between the radical potential Mm -hmm. of private intimacy nested, hived or juxtaposed against, right, this sense of um, of a much wider and potentially dangerous world at any rate. I think we have this beautiful conclusion here where, where the poem literally offers a kind of family meal mm-hmm. to the reader. Doors open, soup song. Just one other Go thing, ahead. though. It's, it's a deeply political poem. I want to say that. Right? Okay. I, I think madness is colonization, is what he says. Right? There, there's a sense of the colonial, the post-colonial at stake here, mm-hmm. but also this true sense of Israel prioritizing privacy. So we've got the political and the private. Uh, juxtaposed here. Yeah, I think most of his work is working within the political, but doing it in a very uh, tender way. Yep. 
And um, with your language, uh, intimate communion and confidentiality and the relationship between the poet and the reader or the poem and the reader, I can't help but hearing the notion of the confessional. Mm -hmm. Much political poetry is confessional in nature. That is, it's based around real lives and real bodies and real events. And I think that uh, tenderness is a key word here, especially when thinking of the private and of confessional poetry. Because when we think of confessional poetry and we think of someone like John Berryman, who whether or not he wanted to call himself that, we can, mm -hmm. he's extremely violent. Mm. He has poems about hacking women up, suicide, of course. So the kind of privacy that he wants to let you in on is a kind of um, violent or salacious or hyper intense um, sort of privacy. And the same thing with Plath. Right. And um, I was wondering if in the first poem by Ben Dorf, if he was alluding to Plath when he says, Daddy, ah. little lamb. Right. And I think that this abutting of the confessional and the tenderness is done explicitly here with daddy, little lamb being the sort of violent confessional of daddy up against Blake's <laughs> little lamb in uh, his poem, The Lamb, Little Lamb, right. who, who Made Thee. And so I think that that's happening throughout. And I think that, you know, outside of direct reference to um, colonization, that that is deeply political, mm. especially thinking about uh, contemporary poetics and the way that private moments have been privatized. I mean, I think that's beautifully put. For what it's worth, I think Plath is all, all over these poems. Even the one I just read, Colony Collapse, Plath was writing constantly about bees. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, she's got a poem that references royal jelly, for instance, which we, we have here. I mean, I, I don't know Plath enough to kind of like name the poems by title, but I did go through a, a serious Plath phase in my, in my youth and was particularly drawn to her bee poems, mm -hmm. which uh, this one uh, plays with right up against something we haven't talked about which is the eco ecological sort of stakes of the poem right uh, so in some sense if we think that the hive is this kind of private interior space what does it mean that it's up against you know, a world of climate catastrophe and colony collapse there's a there's a sense of desperate sort of optimism in the in the last lines right mm -hmm. where there's this kind of invitation into that private intimate space with everything looming over it threatening to collapse it right mm -hmm. Well, for better or worse, um, I think that looming sense of collapse actually brings us full circle mm -hmm. in regard to some of the themes in the fiction that we weren't able to get to this time. But, Kylan, at the end here and with the future in mind, an optimistic one, I'm sure, I wanted to finally ask you what your plans are for the future of the Carolina Quarterly. Sure. So a couple of things. We want a much more robust digital presence, both for our subscribers as well as people who just want to visit our website, right? So having something for both people. Uh, both groups of people. And I think the reason for that is that increasingly people prefer to consume their their written word online, right? Mm -hmm. We want both, though. You know, we're producing an art object here, right? And so to have that object is, is important. But I think also ease of dissemination is also crucial. Another thing that I'm excited to kind of roll out here for the quarterly in an ongoing way is, is uh, to feature translation more in our pages. Uh, our poetry editor, Calvin Olson, has been excellent at hunting down translation on its own. We've recently received a small grant from the UNC Center for Global Initiatives to solicit some work and reimburse those translators for, for their labor uh, so that we can, we can really have a robust translational element at play in, in the quarterly. I think that maybe goes hand in hand with, with my sense of wanting to boost our presence digitally is, again, accessibility, right? Um, 
and positioning the quarterly as an institution that is both locally committed as well as globally committed, right? And thinking about engaging in a world literary conversation, I think is, is important for me, in addition to this kind of like space of intimacy that I want to kind of cultivate in the journal as well. So, you know, trying to have it all. <laughs> uh, we didn't get to it, but the poem Transfiguracion by Vicente Huidobro, translated by Jonathan Simpkins, was maybe one of my favorite poems in the, in the issue. Uh, we didn't have time to get to it, but it was pretty incredible. So thank you, Kylan. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks it's for been being a pleasure. here. Yeah, of course. That'll do it for our time here at CQ Speaks. If you like what you've heard and would like to learn more, you can visit us at thecarolinaquarterly.com, where you can read online exclusives, subscribe to the print or digital journal, and submit work of your own. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening. And remember, you can follow all we do here at facebook.com slash carolinaquarterly and on Twitter at nc underscore quarterly. Be on the lookout for upcoming issues, and in the meantime, read well, write well, and thanks for listening to CQ Speaks.